I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Our text today is going to be verses 1 through 9. The message is entitled, Difficult Times. One of the major emphases in 2 Timothy is on suffering for Christ. What will happen when we live out our faith in a world that is opposed to it? And Paul at the time found himself in prison awaiting a death sentence. And he's calling for Timothy to suffer as a good soldier of Christ. Christians at that time were being persecuted under the Roman Empire and facing many difficulties. And we begin now reading in verse 1. And here's what the scripture says. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. These are hard times, difficult times, perilous times, terrible times. These are times of trouble. And times here is not the word meaning chronological time, but rather it refers to seasons. He's speaking of heightened seasons of peril in the church. The trouble that we might anticipate as we move toward the end of the age. The word was used in classical Greek, both of dangerous animals and of the raging sea. Its only other New Testament occurrence is in the story of the two Gadarene demoniacs who were as savage and untamed as wild beasts. And they're described as being so fierce that no one could pass that way. In reference here to the last days, that's the general time period that is marked out between the first coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. But in this, there will be an acceleration of the degradation of society as time moves forward. Paul mentions the last days numerous times in his writings, with the main focus being on the time immediately preceding the consummation of the age. So we might think about it in the general sense of the broader category of the last days, but then in the specific sense of what's going to happen as we approach the actual end of the age and the consummation of all things. Now, Paul gives a list here that's extensive of the signs that we should expect. I pick back up now in verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Timothy needed to know what to expect as he led the church at Ephesus. And he needed to know what to expect because if he knew what to expect, he wouldn't get discouraged or fall away because it wasn't anything that he had not already known about or known to look for. We need to know what to expect for the same reasons so that we can anticipate it helps us be faithful and persevere so we're not surprised when these things happen. And the Word of God has given us a warning and helping us understand what to look for as the age approaches. Now, the Holy Spirit does not tell us about these things so that we'll be afraid. 
He doesn't tell us about these things so that we'll be pessimistic. He doesn't tell us about these things so that we'll go hide in a bunker somewhere and disengage from the world. He warns us of these things in advance so that we can spiritually reinforce our lives. So that we can understand that the victory has already been won in Christ. We can live from the victory, not for the victory. We can live in the freedom that Jesus has given us until he returns. And in the meantime, God is building a family for himself. And we get to be a part of that. So I want to share with you some categories of difficult times in the last days that I think will specifically help us understand these characteristics of difficult times in the last days. And the first is this, people will be self-centered. This is no surprise to us. Difficult times will be this way, not because of circumstances only, but because of evil people. And to make matters worse, many people will profess Christianity, but they'll look nothing like Christ. Christ warned about this when he told the parable of the kingdom of heaven and spoke of it as including both wheat and tares. You can read about it in the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed seed in the field. And while people were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed other seeds. The one man had sown the seeds of the wheat. The other, the enemy, sowed the seeds that were nothing more than weeds. And the servants asked if they were to go and uproot the weeds from the field. The landowner said, no, let it grow until harvest. And at the harvest... The reapers will gather the weeds first and tie them together and burn them. And then the servants will gather in what is good. They'll gather in the wheat and they'll put it in the barn. Jesus is the sower. Genuine believers are in the field of the world and through the grace of God, we have fruitful lives. Our presence on this earth is the reason that the kingdom of heaven is like the field of the world because we are representing God in the world. And instead of taking the tares out with the wheat, the landowner simply waits for the harvest. And after the harvest, the tares could be separated and burned and the wheat could be saved. So when Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant that the spiritual realm is at hand. When the kingdom is fulfilled in heaven, there'll be no tares among the wheat. But for now, there are both. And the enemy in the parable is none other than Satan who is opposing Jesus and trying to destroy his work through false believers and through false teachers in the world who will lead people astray. So we're told here very plainly that in the last days, in these difficult times, that people will be lovers of self. Now this is interesting because it's the dominant aspect of the last days. And as the dominant aspect of the last days, it is the sin that leads to further sins. Think back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Satan tempted Eve to be like God in the garden. And from there, it became the main motivation driven by sin. This way of thinking says that life is all about me. 
life is about my satisfaction. Life is about my happiness. And it doesn't matter how that affects anyone else. He goes deep into this idea with these descriptors in verses 2 through 4. And the adjective that is used for lovers of self is an adjective that means literally self-loving. It's the basic sin out of which all others flow. And the reason that it's the basic sin out of which all others flow is because at the heart of it, it's the sin of pride. That says, I am the most important. And it doesn't matter how that affects anyone else. But here's the problem that is all too painful that we all have seen time and again. If a person makes themselves the center of life, every other relationship around them is ultimately destroyed. We see it in homes, we see it in friendships. We see it in relationships in the church. When a person elevates themselves as most important, and then everybody else and everything else is secondary to that, trouble is going to follow. And I would summarize this in this way. Self-centeredness causes an unwillingness to surrender to God, and it is driven by prideful self-preoccupation to the point of being out of control. That's what's being described here. To be self-centered by definition is to be concerned solely with your own desires, your needs, your interest. And this perspective is in opposition to the scripture and it is in opposition to life in Christ. Galatians 5 and verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, in part, this means no longer being subject to the flesh and not giving in to sin as a pattern of your life if you're going to avoid this. And do we not look to Jesus as the ultimate example of what this means lived out in the world? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In contrast to that, the self-centered person wants to please themselves rather than God. The self-centered person wants all eyes on them. They want the attention. They want the appreciation. They want the focus. They want all the things that belong ultimately to God rather than surrendering themselves and all their gifts and their abilities and their desires to God. One preacher uh, illustrated this by telling that there are two stories that compete for our minds and our hearts. And I love the way he does this because I think it so wonderfully illustrates the contrast between the two. And he put it this way. He said, The first story is broadcast loudly across pop culture, social media, and all media. It claims that you and I are the center of the universe. We are unique individuals, and we can be awesome. All we need to do is create our own identities. By making the right choices with our wardrobe and our weekends, by hanging out with the right people and doing the right things, we can be limitlessly happy. 
The world offers you and me an amazing life. All we have to do is just go out and make it happen. And I'm sad to say that is often the picture that is presented even in churches of what it means to be a Christian, which ultimately is antithetical to the gospel. But then there's a second story. The second story is quiet. It's more of a whisper from the back burner in our brains, and it will not go away. It's there in the quiet, in the middle of the night. It's the longing when the promises of the first story underdeliver. The whisper tells us that we were made for more. In hushed voices, it insists that we have an immovable and important identity, a sort of real home somewhere out there. We're longing for it. We know that it's not just in our imaginations. There's got to be more to this life, and it nags us. But we tend to continuously suppress that second story, largely because the first story is so loud. Everything from Instagram to movies to clothing ads to political campaigns declares that we can be whoever we want to be. And pursuing the second story takes time and intentionality. And it goes against every cultural grain. Church, we are instructed to deny self if we want to be disciples of Jesus. Jesus said, if any man would be my disciple and come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have to deny yourself by surrendering to Jesus daily. And we see the reality that life and the Christian life and life with God has its ups and downs because we're living in a sin-fallen world. And the world and the flesh and the devil are, are a constant pull on us. And they're, they're constantly drawing us in for our attention and for our affections. And we have to spend time in prayer and in the Word. This is essential because we are pushing back against that first story and we are taking hold of that second story and we are saying that we were made for something more and we long for what God has for us and we deny ourselves by imitating Jesus and Jesus lived his life on this earth in total devotion to the Father. But I'll remind you that his living his life on this earth in total devotion to the Father took him all the way to the cross. And we deny ourselves by serving others, loving God and loving people, demonstrating that we are true disciples and we're not just saying words. These are difficult times because people will be self-centered. But then there's a second characteristic, a second category. People will be focused on pleasure. In fact, it says here, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Four times the word lovers is used in verses 1 through 9. Two words are used here that are similar in, in form. The first points to love for pleasure. The second points to love for God. So it could say, if we were to paraphrase this, instead of loving God, they will love pleasure. The words lover of, lovers of pleasure come from a compound of two words, phileo and hedonos. The first word, phileo, is a well-known word that conveys the idea of affection and love. It's a deep and a profound love. 
The second word, which is hedonos, is only used five times in the New Testament. Every single time that this word is used in the New Testament, it pictures of people who are preoccupied with pleasure, who live to gratify their own, ple- their own selves and their own flesh, and they live for their own personal happiness. Hedonism is our word in English. We're all familiar with that word. And it's defined as the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the highest good. So in a sense, this is an addiction to and an obsession for a pleasurable way of life. First century philosophers warned against this, even the Jewish philosophers that were not believers. The Stoics warned against this, of the problems that come along with this mindset. But for many people in the world, pleasure is the highest good. That's what they're pursuing. And Paul tells us that in society, in the last days, people will be preoccupied, even obsessed, with the pursuit of their own personal comfort, pleasure, and happiness. And here's the problem. We can see the symptoms. We, we can see the evidence of it, but, but we've got to go a layer deeper and we've got to go to the root. The implication is that pleasure is regarded as a substitute for God. And people are trying to find something that they can only find in a, in a relationship with God. And we see it all the time, but here's part of the challenge for us. There's a whole lot of stuff in life that in and of itself is morally neutral. It's not overtly sinful. God is not against blessings. God is not against our joy. He is for that. As long as we hold on to these things in a proper perspective and they're not our primary focus. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So everything that God made that is good, that is not sin, was made for us to enjoy. And when we enjoy those things, it's pointing us higher to God because God is the giver of all good gifts. But the problem is when we get that stuff out of order. And that becomes our preoccupation. And even though some of that stuff is not in and of itself sin, when it rises to the level of misplaced priorities at best or idolatry at worst, that's where the trouble comes. And the pursuit of pleasure then occupies the highest priority in culture. Now, you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The problem is pleasure-centered living does not produce happiness. Why do I know that? We have more material goods. We have more comfort in the present generation than at any time in the entire history of the world. And yet people are more anxious and stressed out than they have ever been. How could it be that we have everything at our disposal that's supposed to make us happy, that's supposed to bring us pleasure and joy, and yet we're so dissatisfied? The reason that that can be is that that stuff was never intended to be our ultimate satisfaction. That's why. We're looking in all the wrong places is the reason. And if you chase after that stuff rather than chasing after God, if, if your personal pleasure and your satisfaction 
and yourself is at the center of your world, you will never find what you're looking for. It can only be found in God. Let me give you a statistic that I think is symptomatic of this. Americans spent $552 billion last year. That's billion with a B on recreation. Disposable income on recreation. I'm actually surprised it wasn't higher from the statistic that I looked at. That is rising at a rate of 10 to 15% a year. In comparison to that, Americans contributed $100 billion in all categories of charitable giving. I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about the whole thing. Everything that would be considered to be charitable giving. $100 billion. I'm thankful for every dollar of that. But it shows the contrast between what we value. The average Christian in an evangelical church contributes 2.5% of their income to the Lord's work. Only 1 out of 20 actually tithes. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon outlines the foolishness of chasing after pleasure. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. listen, Listen to what he says. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. Wine, women, and song. Man, he went after it. He chased after everything that the world had to offer. He had it at his disposal times 10. And here's what he came down to in verse 11. He said, but in the end, the verdict was that everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. He said, I had everything in my hands, every bit of pleasure that the world could ever offer. And he said, I found out it was all just an effort in futility. I was just chasing after something that ultimately was meaningless. When he comes all the way to the end of Ecclesiastes, he speaks of fearing God and keeping his commandments as the ultimate measure of it all. We're instructed in the scripture that we cannot serve both God and mammon. To glorify God with our lives. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To pray without ceasing. To draw near to God so that God will draw near to you. To redeem the time because the days are evil. Over and again, God says, this is the way, walk in it. And we're over here and we're saying, no, we think we got a better way over here. And yet we're still not satisfied. Unless we walk in the way that God says to walk in, we'll never find true joy. But if we walk in the way that he wants us to walk in, that second story I told you about earlier, that one that's in the back of your mind that's telling you that there's something more, that there's a better way, that there's an ultimate home, that there's an ultimate hope, you can live out that story in your life if you will follow Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way to find it. Listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 through 17. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. We have to guard against worldliness in our own hearts. All of us do. Because this world as we know it is going to pass away and only eternal things are going to remain. So how can we know, Pastor, if we are in the category of lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's one way you can tell. Take a look at how you use your time and set your priorities and how you spend your money and your resources, and you're going to have a pretty good idea. Your time and your resources, your money, where that's going and how that's focused and what's important to you and what your life priorities are and what kind of story you're trying to build, it'll tell the story. And I'd say to you, if it's forbidden in Scripture and it's sin, you've got to stay away from it. Are you taking pleasure in something that God calls sin? Is there something in your life that you're taking part in that if others who are close to you found out about it, you would be ashamed of it? If you have to hide it, it's not good for you. And then if it controls you and it takes you captive and captures the majority of your attention and your affection, let it go. Are there things that dominate your time and your thoughts and your heart's desires? And if it hinders serving God and serving people, you know it's not contributing to your spiritual growth. And God is leading you to adjust the order of your priorities. Your priorities tell everything. And they're going to lead you on the path that you're going to go down. In these difficult times, in these last days, people will be focused on pleasure. But then there's a third category, a third characteristic. Some will hold to the form of godliness but deny its power. Now, I think this is under the category of the last days, but I think Paul is also saying, hey, Timothy, I already see this happening in Ephesus. It's probably been characteristic of all of church history, to be honest, but it would point to our day certainly So you say, well, what's the form of godliness? It's an external show of religion, pretending to be godly outwardly. These are the people who make an outward display of religion. They claim to be in fellowship with God, but they deny its power. They may be called Christian by name. They may may have been baptized somewhere into a church. Their name might be on a church roll somewhere. They are making a show of religion by occasional participation, but yet their heart is not with Christ and for Christ. Paul addresses a similar issue in the church at Corinth, and I won't read the entire passage, but in 1 Corinthians 5, he's dealing with the sexually immoral and people who are living in ways that are contrary to God. And he's speaking of those who are claiming to be a brother or a sister in Christ. And he says, don't even eat with such a person. It's going to be all kinds of trouble. It's the form of godliness, but denying its power. What's the power? The power is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us live life with and for God. It is a separated lifestyle for his glory. And the Bible is clear that the kingdom of God is not in word only, but in power. There is no power behind the religion of many. You say, well, that's a bold claim. 
How could you say that there are people who are saying the right things and they're professing the right things, but there's no power in their lives? I can say that because of the evidence of unchanged lives. God is clear in his word that if our lives have been changed, it's not just a mental ascent to some facts about the gospel. It's not being on a church roll somewhere. It's not even going through the baptismal waters. It is being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, of recognizing that you are a sinner and you are in need of a Savior. And it's your surrender of your life to him. And if you're depending on the former rather than the latter, you might be in this category. And the power of God is operative in our lives because of the Holy Spirit. And there ought to be fruit that is evidenced in our lives. This might well be similar to what I repeatedly refer to as consumer Christianity. I'm going to keep beating that drum because I think this is the issue of the age in the church in the West. And I share this with you from Thomas Reeves in his book, The Empty Church. He said, Christianity in modern America tends to be easy, upbeat, convenient, and compatible. It does not require self-sacrifice, discipline, humility, an otherworldly outlook, a zeal for souls, a fear as well as a love of God. He says it's characterized by little guilt and no punishment, and the payoff of heaven is virtually certain. He said what we now have might be labeled consumer Christianity. The cost is low, and customer satisfaction seems guaranteed. I want you to hear me clearly. It would be a tragic thing to participate in the faith at some level and never really know Jesus. It would be a total waste of your life now and eternally to get close but not have genuine faith and stand before Jesus someday. And Jesus made it clear in Matthew 7 and verse 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only uh, one who does the will of my Father in heaven. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This warning applies to all who speak or say things to or about Jesus but are nothing more than superficial. Now listen, hear me out. I'm not talking about a try hard or do better gospel. I'm not talking about some super level of spirituality. That is not what I'm talking about. If we're in heaven someday with God, it's going to be all of grace. Like, like the only reason any of us will be there will be because of the blood of Jesus. It will only be because God has looked at us through the righteousness of his son. So this is not in any way our effort or our ability or our worthiness somehow qualifying us for being with God in heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm referring here to those who might say the right things, but don't genuinely by faith know the savior this is what paul's referring to 
Some will hold to the form of godliness, but they will deny its power. And he says very plainly in verse 5, avoid these people. And I say to you as I come toward a close, do not be led astray. Don't be led astray. Let's pick back up now in verse 6 and read through the end of verse 9. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. So here's the situation. In Ephesus, the false teachers had crept into homes through certain weaknesses that they exploited. Uh, They could not recognize uh, the truth. And the reference here to Janus and Jambres and their opposition to Moses... I believe draws, at least in part, on two of Pharaoh's magicians who competed against Moses and lost. Now, they are not mentioned specifically in the Exodus account. They are mentioned in Jewish literature. And the basic situation was that uh, the magicians in Pharaoh's court, when Moses threw down Aaron's rod and it became a snake, they cast down their rods and they became snakes. And then Aaron's rod swallowed theirs. And the point is, at every turn, they opposed Moses. So Paul is saying, just like they opposed Moses, at every turn, these false teachers are opposing Christ and the church in Ephesus. This is the situation. These are opponents of God who have depraved minds, who oppose the truth, and they are rejected by God. But, but now listen. Here's the beauty of it. This is, this is the hope of the situation. As bad as it is or as bad as it might get, they were a temporary problem. False teachers are a temporary problem in our day as well. Why? Because their foolishness would be clear to everyone, and God will make the foolishness of the false teachers today apparent to everyone. And we know that empty and false religion will fail in the end. It is in the darkness that the light of truth shines the brightest. Don't be led astray. Look to the light and find your way. I love what the late Adrian Rogers said, and I close with this. He said, we need to be saturated with the word of God, motivated by the spirit of God, and activated in the work of God. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Know where you stand and what you stand for because the days are growing darker and the enemy works in the shadows. Remember what you have learned in the light. Remember what you have learned in the light. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and as we come toward a close of the service. I don't know where you are spiritually today, but God does. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, 
you need to thank God for that and ask him to help you to be led by the light to not be confused and led astray by false teachers and false ideologies and things that are contrary to God's word and God's son but maybe you've been saying the right things but your heart is not truly with Christ your faith is not in him it's in some form of religion or something else there's hope for you today if you'd simply turn to Jesus and ask him to be your savior and lord and he'll answer that prayer may we be the people of God who are walking in the light teaching the truth loving and discipling people because Jesus has loved us and made us his disciples May the second story guide us in all things. Father, we're grateful for these moments you've given to us. We don't take them lightly. Thank you for your grace that is overwhelming, without which none of us would stand, none of us would have hope, none of us would have joy. Thank you for the good things you give us in our lives that are meant to be enjoyed, that are that are meant to be experienced with an eye on you as the one who's the giver of the good gifts. Lord, may we not get the order of our priorities out of order and focus on the gifts rather than the giver. And help us to prioritize our lives in such a way that reflect that you are Savior and Lord over all. You are God and King. And we sing hallelujah to you. We give this time of closing response over to you if there are spiritual steps that need to be taken, uh, commitments that need to be made, prayers that need to be prayed. I pray that people would respond appropriately, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.